You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. It's Wednesday, August the 24th, and you're very welcome to the weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. The children of Ireland are covering their copybooks and filling their pencil cases in anticipation of returning to school in the next few days. However, there are still another five weeks or so to go before the dull summer recess finally draws to a close. That's not to say, though, that all TDs will be recharging their batteries right up until September the 27th. We sent our intrepid political correspondent, Sarah Barden, up to Leinster House to try and snare a TD, and she returned with no Rock the Finnegal TV for Dublin Northwest. Um, you're uh, you're very welcome, Sarah, and you're very welcome, Noel. And we're also joined by Pat Leahy, who has returned, recharged, and refreshed from the the wilds of, of West Cork. I gather, Pat. West Cork and Kerry, indeed. Yes. Yeah. Right. No. Is it a bit like uh, you know those uh, parts of Harry Potter where Harry can't go home when everybody goes home for the Christmas for the summer holidays because his parents are so horrible? (laughs) Is that like you knocking around the echoey corridors up there, being being chased around by ghouls? Kind of, yeah. I'm uh, met with walls of silence everywhere I go. (laughs) It's um, it is remarkable. There are some days where you go in there and you're genuinely not. You don't bump into a single uh, single other politician, which I'm sure is something Sarah is finding uh, most frustrating <laughs> right now. <laughs> I think Noel and I are the only two people roaming the corridors of Leinster House these days. Every time we roam, we fo- we bump into each other because, you know, I think in fairness, though, to the politicians, they had have had a long year. So I think everybody ran for the hills the minute the doll broke up for the summer recess and are, I'm sure, working very hard in their constituencies. And is that the case, Noel? I mean, do you have a lot of demands on you from your constituency all the time or is that a lot of what you'd be doing? Yeah, hugely. Um, you know, a lot of people, because, you know, school might be out or whatever, they actually realise that there are kind of a checklist of things they want to get done locally and they seem to get on to you practically the day that school finishes. So there's actually a huge list of things on my desk. Yeah, what kind that. of things would they be? Ah, like all sorts of local things or legislative things or, you know, medical cards or, you know, there could be a wide variety of things. Um, the biggest thing that we come up against in the office is certainly housing queries and what have you. Mm. Um, so it might be the case that you know somebody uh, wants to change their their housing situation right now or have been uh, in not in suitable accommodation for a long time and want to get something a bit different uh, let me ask you that about that because I mean Dublin Northwest is an interesting constituency it's slightly changed I think the at the last election got it but it's got a mix of sort of middle class areas in you know in Glasnevin and, and Drumcondra and then more working class areas and a lot of social housing around around Ballymun which has which has very various issues as well so in a way it's a pretty good laboratory for seeing what's happening with the housing crisis which is probably the main item on the government's agenda at the moment yeah that's absolutely true to say Hugh and you know we're actually uh, we're kind of of a, a ground of experimentation as well and that we had the first modular homes I suppose in the state installed up there in Poppentry just by Ikea and um, Balbutcher Lane in fact where I would have grown up myself in, uh, in social housing there so um, there's a, a clear mix I suppose of demographics and of needs in the constituency as well on one hand you have people who need social housing and then on the other you have people where maybe inheritance tax is probably one of their biggest problems so you're always kind of I suppose weighing up the two sides of the equation against each which other Which bunch are more likely to vote for Fine Gael? Well I mean I'm always trying to uh, trying to push into areas that are, are non-traditional Finnegan. Like, I mean, look, we haven't had a seat in that constituency in 24 years before now, so it's clear that you do need to kind of push things in a slightly less traditional Finnegan direction, I suppose, to, to succeed there. So, you, I mean, you'd be dealing with um, people in your constituency who are beyond the social housing list, I, I presume. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, 
there was there's a proposal to amend the way in which the housing list works. Uh, I understand. Are you in favour of that? As I understand it, it gives people a chance to pitch for housing. One of the problems I, it is reported at the moment is that when people are on the social housing list, if they turn down the offer of housing, that kind of gums up the system and takes it longer to kind of to address the list. Yeah, it can do. So, I mean, ostensibly, I am in favour of the reforms. Um, right now, effectively, you have a kind of a three strikes and you're out sort of system whereby you have the chance to reject uh, three Three, uh, three offers of social housing. Um, for a lot of people, that doesn't necessarily work. Um, so I think any kind of reform is probably welcome at this stage. I mean, the most fundamental problem is the lack of supply. Like, I've met people who are up to 16 years on the social housing list, you know, who started with a baby and now the baby's going to college uh, and they're still on the social housing list. And that's extraordinary. In a lot of these cases, they're making do. They're living with friends. They're living with relatives. They're not necessarily in a suitable accommodation situation. Obviously, some of them are homeless, as is well documented. Some of them are living in hotel accommodation. So there are a wide variety of people in all sorts of different situations. And while new list systems are welcome, the only thing that's actually going to of this is supply. Why did the state stop building social housing? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, you know, I'm living in what is now a private house, but in 1928 was built as the social house in Drumcondra. Um, we seem to have stopped doing that in the 60s, basically. Um, so you find there's a real paucity of quality social housing. Uh, the rent supplement scheme, when it was introduced, was a way, I suppose, of, uh, of making up that shortfall. But actually, what it's meant, obviously, is that the state is paying over literally tens of millions per annum, uh, hundreds of millions, in fact, per annum. Um, and hundreds of millions to private landlords into private tenancy arrangements which don't have the security of tenure, uh, as we know, certainly in Ireland, that, that people have, that they might get in social housing where they know they can raise a family and live their lives in, in one particular house. Correct. So we don't have a, a kind of an ample housing stock coming on, on stream, if you like. And, you know, without any, without any input, there can't really be any output, I suppose. So, I mean, we don't have social housing stock coming online, yet for those in social housing, if they find themselves in a better station in life or the ability to buy a house in life, we want to still allow them to buy that house. So we do have that that scheme in place. So you actually find that the supply of social housing is constantly depleting. There's a certain illogicality to that, and maybe in the short term as well, that at a time when there's a massive shortage and well-established shortage of social housing, there's still the state is still selling uh, uh, s- selling its housing stock uh, to, uh, to people who want to buy it. I mean, a, a, a housing list system that has people on it for 16 years clearly just isn't in need of some token reform. It's a it's a system that doesn't work. It doesn't work as a, uh, and that's not just a, a policy failure. Or the, the the whole housing problem is symptomatic of not just a policy failure, though there have been policy failures, but also of a market failure. It wasn't just the state that stopped building houses. Everybody stopped building houses, and in a way, it's an example well, of the law. Well, stopped building houses after the after the crash, after 2007, 2008, but the state stopped building social housing kind of 10 years before that. Well, I suppose the state was contracting out the building of social mm-hmm. housing um, to the market, and when the market stopped building uh, houses, then uh, then social and, and, and mixed housing units stopped, uh, stopped coming online. But in a way, it's an example of the law of unintended consequences. When the developers who bankrupted the banks, which bankrupt, which in turn bankrupted uh, the country, all went bust, uh, people uh, people cheered when they saw them going bankrupt. One of the great accusations against the setting up of NAMA in uh, originally, you may remember, was people said, this is a bailout for the developers. The developers are going to be rescued and we'll end up paying for it. In, a fa- in actual fact, what happened is all, most of the developers were made uh, bankrupt and people cheered to see their, uh, their, their trophy assets taken off them. The problem then was 
there was nobody to build houses. And it's the consequences of that problem that we are now left with uh, some, uh, some years later. And that's not a problem for all the government's efforts on um, on uh, on housing, and I know that uh, we had Simon Coveney in here in this studio talking about it not so uh, not so long ago, and his proposals have received a general welcome from most stakeholders and most sectors in society. But this isn't a problem that is going to be solved with one policy magic bullet. It's going to take uh, uh, it's going to take several years, I think, to iron out. It's going to take a long, a long-term problems, complex approach, which is something which is that not our system has not been very good. No, at it's doing. not because there tends not to be a political payoff for long-term thinking and uh, long-term planning. One final point I'll say on this is that this uh, the, the, the public face of this crisis may get worse before it gets better because in the autumn, you know, very, very shortly we will see queues of students outside, uh, uh, you know, bedsits and, and, uh, and apartments for rent and so forth trying to get a place to live. Um, when the uh, when the colleges come back, and I think that is likely to be one of the short term political issues of the autumn. I suppose, sir, the question is: is you're rattling around the corridors looking for stories that aren't there at the moment for uh, for a newspaper. We're all trying to fill that. Um, maybe it's not a function of the legislators at the moment to deal with this crisis. But is there work? Are we aware? You know, is is the groundwork being laid for Simon Coveney's plans to be implemented as yeah. soon as possible? Well, absolutely. He sent out a number of. Um, circulars to local authorities uh, sort of enforcing the point as to what they are obliged to do uh, in response to this housing crisis. He's also uh, proposing a new rental scheme uh, by the end of the year and there's a number of things that he's looking at in that regard. But as as Pat said, um, you know, it's it's a real pressing political point, but there are no, I suppose, immediate political gains in this. It's it's not a, it's not a crisis that's going to be easily solved within the corridors of of dollar uh, the dollar Shannadair. And I mean, it's the issue is supply, and you can't build houses overnight. And as much in political goodwill. Uh, Simon Coveney may have that really is the difficulty that the that the, that we face. You can't build houses overnight. There's a, an incredibly long and complex planning process in this country that probably could be uh, shortened um, to make you know to make the building of houses a lot quicker. But pretty inadequate system of local government as well in terms of acting quickly and pivoting quickly to to implement this, isn't it? Yeah, and um, you know I think. The Taoiseach has been very vocal on that. He, you know, the, the local authorities have been given all the resources in the world um, to, to to play their part in this role, and they haven't responded adequately enough. You know, I think for for my generation and, and for Noel's generation, the problem is there is no security in renting anymore. Um, you know, I, I had a situation myself not so long ago where I was living in a house for four years, and the landlord, you know, decided that she wanted to give the accommodation to her son. She's perfectly entitled to do that. But for me, you know, I was faced with having to look for a new home within a short period of time after four years in in a, in a place, you know, that I that I had grown to love, that I'd considered my home. In, trying to find a place to rent then for a reasonable price, um, you know, location, obviously being a, a, a key factor here was incredibly difficult. Now, I've, I've found, I have found one, but I mean, it, it, the problem is for people, there's no... There's no willingness for people to rent in this country. You know, every, there's a, everyone says it's a cultural issue that Irish people love to buy to buy their own home, to own their own home. But for our generation, that's not really. I don't really see it as a thing. I just want to live in a house that I know that I uh, can stay in. Turfed out in eighteen exactly. months' time. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think you know, 
that's one of the things that the government need to look at. And, and Alan Kelly, in fairness to him, um, when he was Minister for, for the Environment, introduced some measures for security of tenure. Um, and Simon Coveney has built on them too. But I think, you know, that there needs to be there needs to be more uh, done in that area. And I think we need to start looking at a student accommodation. There has to be just accommodation built solely for housing students. There will always be an appetite and always a market for that. I mean, we're seeing it in the papers every single day as as um, the CAO offers are passed around and people are looking for accommodation. It's just there, there, there is nothing available. There is just nothing available for people. And that's, you know, it's kind of frightening, really. Yeah, and I mean, where I am is, is ground zero for student accommodation. You know, I can see St. Pat's in my house and Dublin City University is just up the road as well. So, I mean, people who rent on my road, myself included, are always in competition with students uh, and are kind of increasingly being crammed, kind of ate into a house to a certain extent. And, you know, you see this phenomenal price rise year on year. This year is up again about 20% on last price year. Rise, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean... I mean, is, is that price gouging by landlords? Yeah, to a certain extent it is. And, I mean, there's very little that we as renters can do about it. And it's actually, it's kind well, of one of the... the TDs can do about it. Yeah, you're a TD who's a renter, you're in a because I doubt that there are that many TDs who are renting their main, their principal residence. I, I mean, would suspect you're right. I've never done the numbers on it, but I would suspect I'm in a minority certainly. And you know what I would say is that it clearly does need to be looked at. I mean the the kind of the the two year rent certainty that Alan Kelly brought about. Um, while it's welcome, it's clearly not quite having entirely the effect that we would have hoped it would have had. Um, because you know rents are at a record high. We just saw that from the DAF.ie report. Do you think, because I mean, given that you're, you're the youngest Fine Gael TD, I think you're the youngest TD, are you? In the, uh, third in the youngest. Third overall, youngest yeah. TD. In the, I mean, is there, is, is, <laughs> is there, is there, is there who, who's younger? Uh, Donica, Not Donica O'Leary from Sinn Féin <laughs> and, uh, and Jack Chambers from Fianna Fáil. No, it's just every time I do an interview, they both come up to me after and I'm like, well, you're not the youngest, Noel, and you know you're not the youngest. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we have, that, we have that on the record. But do you think that there is, a, there is a kind of almost like a generational conflict here? Or, I mean, I do wonder, say, about whether it be, you know, middle class middle aged journalist in the Irish Times or middle class what are you looking at me when you say that (laughs) (laughs) I can look into into the mirror as well Uh, or middle class middle aged um, TDs in the dull that they're not necessarily at the coalface of these kinds of experiences and they don't necessarily understand how they're really affecting people yeah and I mean that's why it's good to have people of a diversity of backgrounds right in terms of age in terms of life situation it's good to actually have these different perspectives I suppose in the Oireachtas and that's why you know it's important I suppose that I'm there and that I stand up for my generation as well in that sense you know the issues that are facing me and I won't speak for Sarah but certainly for many in my generation are you know the lack of certainty of rent the lack of ability if you want to get on the property ladder to buy because of those new central bank rules the lack of certainty in jobs you know a lot of people are running on shorter term contracts with lower incomes uh, the lack of ever working without USC being part of our lives you know I've always paid effectively a 50% marginal tax rate and so you know there are these things I suppose that you get the sense in my generation that the ladder is being pulled up and pulled away from you um, you know when you look at Gardaí when you look at nurses when you look at teachers you can consistently see that you know the class of 1977 have done phenomenally better than the class of 1987 and that there needs to be a lot done there to address those shortcomings going forward and a lot of this is due to policies that were introduced by Fine Gael over the last six years or so you know and there was a financial emergency at the time but we need to acknowledge coming out of that I suppose financial emergency that there's also equity to be had and we need to remedy a lot of those problems because the people in the kind of a how would you say the manana generation I suppose to a certain extent who are always pushing these commitments like you know buying a house getting married settling down having kids are pushing these things to tomorrow 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 
but there's only so long you can push that for. And I think our generation, to a certain extent, are at a bit of a breaking point. You know, there are people now that I know that are, you know, 33, 34, um, that are putting off getting married. There are people I know approaching their 30s that are still living at home, even though they have jobs. So there are a lot of things, I think, for my generation that need to be addressed. But, you know, one of the reasons that Irish politics has tended not to make lurches in policy terms left and right is that there is a a part of the culture of Irish politics is not to offend people. And this is one of those policy choices where we can muddle through or you can make uh, a decision in favour of one group, but which annoys another group. So if you were to give Noel's generation the security of tenure that would make their lives easier in terms of renting renting properties and so forth, then you disadvantage an older generation, like your generation, Hugh, for instance, (laughs) who own the properties and therefore would find their freedom of commercial movement, as it were, with regard to those properties severely constrained. And they will resist that. Your generation will will resist that. But there is a binary choice here to, uh, choice well, here to make. Traditionally what Irish it, politics does yeah, is no, it fudges that choice. Stand up for my generation. Let me make yeah. sure I am not a landlord of any sort. But is there is it not possible that there is some pragmatic um, solution available? The, I mean, the, the landlords associations were coming out this week looking for more favourable. They want to be treated more as a business they, 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 that, that their investment in property doesn't receive the same tax write-offs as other kinds of businesses. And it's been argued in turn that there might be some kind of quid pro quo for that to bring in the kind of things like rent certainty which which exist in European countries so that there might be, you know, there might be some modus vivendi there. And that would require the sort of, uh, the sort of longer term policy making that we have not historically been good at. But it also requires short-term decisions which will annoy vested interest groups uh, to be uh, to be taken. And we haven't been good at that either. Now, in some respects, that's a strength to our, pod, uh, to our polity because it means you haven't had these very stark divisions that you see in, in, uh, in many other countries which are reflective of even starker social divisions. But it also means that we tend not to be good at finding solutions to problems. And, and also this a lot of, of our thorniest political problems now going back generations and including issues of corruption and all kinds of things seem to centre around property and the holding of land, don't they? Yeah, that's absolutely true. But I suppose there's um, there's a bit of a kind of false dichotomy as well, I feel, to a certain extent, that it's not necessarily, you know, the people of our 20s up against the people of the 40s. Yeah, you uh, a good fight, uh, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it's always good to have a scrap. But I mean, you know, something that was scrapped, I think, in 2009 was um, rent tax rebate, for example, for renters. You know, that'd be something that if it was back on the table um, would, would alleviate the burden. I think on people my age to a certain extent. It might extent. also push up rents because people would have more to spend on rents. Absolutely, uh, it might do that. I mean, that's one of the I mean, if you, unintended if consequences. If you have a supply-side problem and you, you, you attempt to ameliorate it either by making it easier for people to pay more rent or indeed to take out larger mortgages as per the central bank rates, all that's going to do is put money into, the, into, in, into as, as Pat characterises it, my generation's pockets again, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I suppose any... Well, it is your generation's already well-stuffed. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> any, uh, any, any tax rebate, uh, any reduction in USC is going to improve the spending power of people my generation in effect. So therefore will potentially drive up rents. I mean there's always the possibility of that. But nevertheless that shouldn't necessarily I, I think block us from A acknowledging the problem and B looking for solutions to that problem. Um, because the longer we ignore this uh, the more vocal I think people are going to get. And I think people kind of you know minus 35 have been somewhat understanding to date. But as the structural problems continue as the rents in Dublin continue to rise by you know to record levels and beyond this is going to really start to crunch people in the private rental sector and there needs to be something done about it. Right. Sarah, I, w- I want to ask you about 
what has been a gift to us in the news business over the last uh, 10 days or so, which is a great page filler, which is the ongoing extraordinary events on, on unfolding in Rio. And you, you've been following all this in the political fallout as well. Yeah, it's also been a great gift to Noel Rock and his budding political career as he becomes a TD for August. Um, no, look, I mean, it's been an extraordinary uh Events. I mean, they've unfolded every morning. You wake up and you're kind of blindsided by what comes out from Rio. It's it's just been extraordinary. Um, the government today will announce their terms of reference for their non-statutory inquiry. Um, Shane Ross and Patrick O'Donovan met with the Attorney General yesterday. They met with the opposition parties yesterday as well. So, you know, it looks like it'll get underway in the not-so-distant future and it will report back within 12 weeks. Um, I'd be very intrigued to know if they will actually get to the bottom of what happened um, in the OCI and indeed THG and Pro 10. Um, they have said that they will upgrade it to a statutory inquiry if necessary because, you know, even though everybody is saying they're willing to cooperate, no doubt when um, this retired judge starts digging, perhaps they won't be as forthcoming with information. But I mean, it's just been... It's Although, fair play to the Rio Police, they've provided a fair bit of information already, haven't they? Well, the Rio Police, <laughs> you know, we could all learn a thing or two from the Rio Police. It's, it, they're literally just handing everything over to the media. I mean, uh, at the press conference yesterday, you know, they showed all the emails that were exchanged between Pat Hickey and uh, Marcus Ev- Evans, the owner of THG. I mean, you can barely get a... a the, the guard press office to answer the phone here so you know they, we could we could learn a, t- a thing or two from them the only thing i would say about the rio police is and it's been a it's been a i suppose a pressing point or at least a talking point was the manner in which uh, pat Hickey was arrested um and the videoing of it and obviously he's a 71 year old man who was filmed uh naked as he was arrested and that video was released to the general public and to the media and so forth but uh, personally i have just would have a little bit of uh you know, reservations about the manner in which that was done. Yeah, to be fair, I was talking to somebody about this, you know, if the real police were as great as all that, well, then Rio wouldn't be the cesspit of, uh, of um, you know, mafia wars, drug dealing and political corruption that it is, is it? No. But on the other hand, it is sort of an eye opener. Zero tolerance for ticket telling. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, nothing else. <laughs> on the other hand, though, it's, 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 a kind of, it's a fascinating story. On one level, it's a, it's a ball of smoke and a distraction from the real political issues that face, that face the country. On the other hand, you know, the state does have an interest in this. And uh, only a couple of weeks ago, um, we had Harry McGee in here and he was uh, he was. Uh, giving us a preview of his ratings for ministers. And uh, I think Shane Ross came out with zero. I don't know if that's what caused him to get on a plane to Rio and start <laughs> start kicking, kicking up a fuss over there. But he's certainly been the centre of the of the news agenda since. Well, I, I wish Harry was here today so we could, uh, we could uh, up, update and maybe upgrade uh, Minister Ross's rating. Um, How do you think he has done? I think he, he's done well, given the circumstances. You know, it's been very hard. As Sarah said, every morning you wake up and the story evolves and the story changes. And it's moving at such a pace and such a speed that it's actually quite hard to catch a hold of it sometimes. So I think uh, Shane's, or Minister Ross's rather, um, wait and see approach to a certain extent has served him well so far. Um, I think him going out there was the right idea. I think uh, looking back on it in retrospect certainly uh, meeting Pat Hickey and trying to get answers from Pat Hickey was actually a crucial part of the story. Had Pat Hickey been arrested without a minister trying to get the requisite answers from him there would have been a lot of questions Mm -hmm. asked from the minister and that kind of retrospective analysis I haven't seen that happen in the media. So with all credit to Minister Ross I do think actually he has done a good job and he has tried to catch hold of what is a very quickly evolving story. He's going to 
establish the terms of reference for the inquiry today. Um, he's going to appoint an ex-judge today, I believe, this evening. Um, and he has looked for input. Um, I believe he's received four parties' input and one uh, independent TD have given input into what they want to see in the terms of reference. I don't know what the terms of reference are. I haven't seen them. Uh, and I don't know what input has been accepted. But by and large, he's been very open in his approach. Uh, and he's asked for you know all recommendations and has welcomed all recommendations and I believe met with at least one opposition spokesperson I mean, I mean, as, as Sarah says, you've been quite vocal in this. What do you think the purpose of this investigation should be? What should it be looking to find out? Well, I think it should be looking to find out specifically things above and beyond what the criminal investigation in Brazil may or may not find. Things that would be of interest to the Irish taxpayer. So, for instance, the precise nature of the relationship between Pro10 and THG, um, the precise nature of how the contract was awarded to Pro10. Um, these are things that the criminal investigation in Brazil may or may not be interested in, but are clearly of explicit interest to the Irish taxpayer, um, how the OCI is governed generally, and how it's been governed retrospectively going back to 2010. Obviously, the inquiry in Brazil will not be interested in that. They are only interested in events which took place in Rio, within their jurisdiction. However, there are questions to be answered on behalf of the Irish taxpayer here, I feel. And as such, uh, I've requested a meeting with the Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement. Uh, as far as I'm aware, that meeting will be happening either today or tomorrow. Um, and I think there are a number of issues there around Pro10 and around THG that really need to be answered. Sir? Yeah, the, I, I think the crucial point is how was Pro10 established, its relationship with THG, um, how it how it won the contract for the distribution of tickets in Rio. They're, they're key questions. Corporate governance at the OCI is obviously a big question too. And in fairness to Shane Ross, you know, events did overtake him. You know, when he was in Rio last week, he had a meeting with Pat Hickey. Pat Hickey stonewalled him, but he didn't, you know, Shane Ross didn't give up. He contacted Kieran Mulvey, or at least contact was made between the two of them. And they came to an arrangement with Pat Hickey on Tuesday evening for an independent member. That's a kind of extraordinary part of this story because it might have all turned out differently. That that. that all That's of it was happening point. the night before the arrest, wasn't it? Yeah, it happened the night before the arrest as Annalise Murphy sailed her way to silver success. Pat Hickey, um, Shane Ross and Kieran Mulvey were sitting on the sidelines agreeing an independent investigation into this uh, controversy. Um, Pat Hickey sort of got cold feet at the, at the end of the day and asked to, that he speak to his uh, lawyers one more time. And later that evening, they were at a function and Shane Ross uh, rang Kieran Mulvey and asked for a final answer from Pat Hickey because uh, Minister Ross wanted to, to, I suppose, announce this on the nine o'clock news back home. And Pat Hickey uh, said, I can't give you an answer, but I'll give you an answer first thing in the morning. 6am the next morning, he was arrested. And I just can't help but think, and I, I don't know if it's it might be naivety on my own part, but if that government investigation was announced, or at least an investigation with a government official on the investigation team. If that was announced on Tuesday night, I can't help but wonder would things have happened as they have done um, since. Now, maybe they would have, and maybe the gov- maybe the police would have moved sooner. I don't know, but it's just an extraordinary it's an extraordinary part of the tale that I don't think has actually been fully explored yet. Why did Pat Hickey agree to? have an independent member on his investigation team and then suddenly get cold feet. Who was advising him um, at that point and why he didn't say yes on Tuesday evening and a government inquiry could have been announced at that point. Pat, I know you've been away and you haven't been following this in detail except sort of from outside the the beltway, so to speak. But there's... Is there any further political ramification to this or is it just a kind of a a summer story from a political point of view, whatever it means for people who are interested (coughs) in it? If there is, I I fail to see it, to be honest. Um, I suspect that 
when normal business resumes in politics next week, the week after, once we get into September and politics cranks up again, I, I, I suspect that this will disappear from the political agenda or at least fall a long way down the political agenda. I struggle to understand why really we're having a, a public inquiry into this or a state-sponsored inquiry of whatever type uh, into this. It seems to me that there is, if the OCI wishes to uh, uh, wishes to cooperate in the process of making public uh, the details of this affair, there's nothing that couldn't be done. Um, that there's nothing it couldn't do with that that, that wasn't covered by a lengthy press conference, um, say example, or the publication by the OCI of its uh, of its detail of the details of its arrangements, particularly um, if for it accepted for Shane Ross's proposal to have somebody nominated by the government as part of as part of that process. Yeah, and if if, to, if an the OCI doesn't wish to cooperate. Um, with that, or doesn't wish to make uh, make that information public, then there will probably have to be then the, the state will have to move on to having a formal statutory inquiry. And I I wonder really what what the point of that is. Notwithstanding that it is certainly a, a story of great public interest and certainly of interest to uh, interest to journalists during uh, during a quiet news period. But I I just wonder what the pressing public interest in uh, in having setting up a formal inquiry. I suspect that it may be that this is politicians doing what politicians feel they have to do to be seen to do something. Is that it? You know, that, that, that you know, to, to a man with a hammer, every problem is a nail, you know, <laughs> uh, that therefore for politicians, uh, an inquiry is what's required. Yeah, possibly. Well, I mean, like, look, I mean, it's obviously been catapulted to the front pages, but I mean, my interest certainly, and I can only really speak on my own behalf here, um, has been ongoing since long before the arrest of Pat Hickey. Now, I know everybody has kind of clamoured on it since that arrest, um, but my own interest has been around Pro 10. Um, around THG, around why tickets didn't get into the hands of the families and friends of the athletes like they should have gotten into. And I think there is a legitimate public interest there. While it may not be to the scale of what has since become a front page story, that's always been the thread of my interest, if you like, and that's always been the bit of it that I've, I suppose, honed in on. Um, Subsequently, it has become a front page story and an inquiry is being launched into it. But nevertheless, I'd rather this wasn't lost in the shuffle. um, And I would like to see some answers to those legitimate questions. Um, And I'd also perhaps like to see, you know, a review of the OCI's corporate governance as well, which, you know, clearly it's been brought to my attention and I'm sure the attention of many others by concerned sources hasn't perhaps been up to scratch. Well, any organisation that has the same head for 30 years seems to me you are likely to find problems with corporate governments. In. Yeah, I tend to agree. Like, I think, um, you know, uh, anything, any any organisation with a head for more than, than 20 years, which obviously still gives the Taoiseach six more years of benefit. <laughs> 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 I was going to work away. Yeah, yeah, I figured you were. 14 is fine. <laughs> yeah. As a, a, careful, a careful shimmy by, by, by Noel Rock around, around that particular point. Listen, finally, I, w- I want to turn it. No, probably the most significant uh, political landmark that's going to happen in the next few months is that for the first time in the history of the state, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael will be agreeing a, bu- a budget to present to the House. Isn't that effectively what's going to happen? Yeah, 
Um, well, you'd hope so anyway. I mean, <coughs> maybe Pat or Sarah can, can tell us a bit more about what's going to happen. I expect there'll be a, a bit of posturing, a bit of disagreement in advance of it. You know, we've already seen several kites being sent up in relation to pensions, in relation to funding of master's degrees, in relation to USC and not being able to claw back the USC uh, cuts from higher earners. So in effect, kind of a lot of red lines have been set down at this stage, kind of like the city centre, you know, red lines are all over the place, it would seem, with the mm. construction of the Lewis. But maybe you yeah, can it's a bit of a shambles out there. Can we expect the same from this process? <laughs> I, you know, I think uh, perhaps Fianna Fáil need to be clearer in their own demands and their own parameters because as far as I can see, um, before we have even reached September, there's approximately 600, 650 million of the 1 billion euro budget has been spent. Um, so it would be perhaps good if they all sat down and maybe agreed it among themselves because it seems though there are kind of various solo runs from various members um, which are often, uh, you know, uh, being greeted with dismay from other members within the party. And it seems though they're going to end up with kind of three billion worth of spending for what is a one billion budget. What's going on, sir? I don't know. Um, all I know is that Michal Martin, before the doll broke up for the summer recess, specifically said to his members, don't... Uh, don't say something in August that you can't back up in October. Uh, Willie O'Dea mustn't have been present at that meeting because he has, as Noel said, gone on a bit of a solo run with regards to demanding increases in, pen- in the pension. Um, five euro, I think it is, he's looking for in um, in October's budget. The reality is, I suppose, there's not there's, there actually isn't that much regular room in this in this uh, year's budget. And I think from what Pascal Donoghue has been saying in public is that they're they're really trying to manage what has happened, the effect that the, that the uh, British referendum, the Brexit referendum has had on Ireland. They want to focus their attentions on that. And and it, it sounds like there isn't much scope for increases in welfare payments or indeed for, um, uh, you know, obviously there will be some reductions in tax, but it doesn't seem like it'll be too, it'll be too big. But I, I think... What will happen really is that Michal Martin and Enda Kenny will decide this budget rather than, than you know, Michael Noonan, Pascal Donoghue. It seems like the relationship between Michal Martin and Enda Kenny is where the, you know, the job gets done. So it seems like it'll it'll be done between those two. And I suppose Willie O'Dea... There's a lot of complications in there and a lot of ways in which things could go awry, aren't there? If we accept that this new budget scrutiny committee thing isn't going to really work in any real way this year, mm. so that it's a kind of a divvy up between, between the government and Fine Gael in particular on the one hand and Fianna Fáil on the other... If the traditional process of Michael Noonan and now Pascal Donoghue going around the departments, pushing back, forwards, back and forwards, and then coming up with a proposal is supplanted by some agreement between Enda Kenny and Michal Martin, is, does that not leave lots of possibilities for slip-ups and messes and misunderstandings and disagreements and things that could just go wrong? Yeah, that's the joy of a minority government, I suppose. These things uh, these things can obviously, will probably cause trouble between the two parties. I mean, what's funny is... Y- y- I think I've heard three Fianna Fáil TDs suggesting they'd pull support for a minority government if X, Y and Z wasn't done. Willie O'Dea on the pensions, Barry O'Kane on the housing, Thomas Byrne on it, you know, on education. Um, it's, it's going to get continuously messy. But I think, you know, what will probably happen and, you know, I, I have no great insight on this front, but is that obviously the legwork will be done by Pascal and uh, and Michael Lunan and options will be given to Enda and Micheál and then the decisions will be done decided between the two of them I think that's probably the way it's going to go yeah, well the, the traditional budget process between 
central finance departments, public expenditure and uh, uh, principally and, 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 and finance and the spending departments. That won't be supplanted and that is already underway. My understanding is it's a good bit farther behind than it should be uh, at this stage. But that, 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 that won't be entirely supplanted. I think what will happen is that an extra political layer will go in on top of all that, which will factor in the sort of political imperatives that Sarah and Noel are talking about um, that have been raised uh, that have been raised by Fianna Fáil and 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 presumably independence. And would that be uh, at what stage in the, in, in, in the traditional process? Would that happen? You know, at what stage would Michal Martin start getting sight of the kind of proposals well, for social welfare or whatever it might be? Uh, well, this is one of the things we don't know because this part of the process is new, and we shouldn't underestimate. I think the extent to which, as with many other things with the current government arrangements, we shouldn't underestimate the extent to which everybody is kind of making this up as they go along. So this will be the first budget that has been constructed in this manner. So I think we can expect plenty of accidents. We can expect plenty of disagreements. We can expect plenty of rows. The challenge for uh, Enda Kenny and Michal Martin and their staffs will be to ensure that those disagreements and differences on the budget don't derail the whole process because a government that can't agree a budget is a government that can't, uh, that can't govern. And isn't the other problem for Fianna Fáil that, you know, when Michael Noonan stands up and delivers his speech and commends this budget uh, to the House, that there's roars of disapproval and outrage to the um, to, over on the other side from the from the left TDs, from the Sinn Féin TDs. And Fianna Fáil have to kind of sit there, I, I suppose, on their hands. They're hardly going to be cheering Michael Noonan, but they, it, they're, they're placed in an awkward position. Uh, that... In a sense, though, is the you're right, but that in a sense is the challenge that Fianna Fáil faces with this arrangement. It's whether it is, it's to negotiate that line between government and opposition. And you're absolutely right that Sinn Féin will be roaring and shouting about it, the independence and the, the, the non-government independence will be roaring and shouting about it. So what does Fianna Fáil do? Essentially, remember Fianna Fáil doesn't necessarily have to vote for this budget, it just has to have enough in it for it that it can abstain on it and thus allow the government to command a majority in the House. But that, that I think, is the Tr- that's the tricky line that Fianna Fáil yeah. has, mm. uh, has to pick out for itself over the coming weeks. That is to find enough within this budget that it can live with it while at the same time, uh, uh, you know, while at the same time not actually running the whole process itself because it's not in government, it's in opposition. No, well, I noticed you gave Andrew Kenny another six years there. Um, realistically, Six months? <laughs> uh, well, just going back to the, the budget point there, I suppose there are two questions, I think, about that. It's, uh, will Fianna Fáil vote in favour of it or will they abstain? And then secondly, will Fianna Fáil be presented with the final budget um, and will they have to approve the final budget, if you like, before it's announced? And these are kind of two questions that, presumably that have been they would, Presumably, though, they would have to have sufficient knowledge of the budget before it reaches the floor of the House so that Fianna Gael and the government knows that it's not going to oppose it when it sees it? I would suspect so, yeah, but these are questions being posed by commentators right now, and I think they're good questions to pose so we can, you know, get answers and oversight before, uh, as you say, uh, you know, uh, rows develop and what have you. And, I think and what's that's the time important. frame here, Noel? When, when is the budget? October. October, the middle of October. Yeah. So, so it's not, not that far away. No, when, uh, when government and politics return uh, in, in the next week or two, the budget will be the overriding focus, I think, of the machinery of government, whatever about 
the theatre of politics, the machinery of government will be consumed with it over the coming weeks. And nobody will be more relieved than Sarah, who's been valiantly holding the fort, searching for stories when there's no stories. You're looking forward to getting some stories in, Sarah? Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to normal life resuming from uh, from next week onwards. It's been uh, it's been a long ale month, but I suppose. You know, Pat made the point earlier that perhaps this OCI scandal or controversy was only making the front pages because it was a quiet month in August. It's that, that's, I don't, I politely disagree. Uh, I actually think this is this has, you know, ramifications. I mean, the, the problem in this country is that there are often all of the power is held in a very few small uh, hands. Pat Hickey has been. Um, a prolific person in sports for a number of decades. Um, the people that are on the board of Olympic Council of Ireland, including John Delaney, is, you know, th- these are very powerful people in this country. And I think it's it, it's imperative that we have some form of, some form of answers about governance and and so forth. And I think that the inquiry that the government is setting up is completely necessary. Now, I do I do take the point that when there's a controversy and a scandal, the government run to, rush to launch an inquiry or a commission of investigation because that makes the problem go away. This inquiry will only have three months to complete its work, so it'll be back on the political agenda just after the budget. Um, and the Budget Committee is meeting next week to discuss, to start its work with regards to the budget. Um, but I think as much as the machinery of government, as Pat said, might be focused on the budget, I think the, the theatre of politics, as he said, will be focused very much elsewhere. Um, you know, we have the the launch of the Citizens' Convention uh, in October, uh, as Pat reports today. There will obviously be the report back from the OCI. I mean, the, the, there is so many impending political controversies that, are, that have been neglected during the month of August. Plus there's this looming challenge of Brexit, which is... The real known unknown, really. Yeah, and, and no one knows what challenges that will bring. But also then, um, NAMA, you know, and where we go with that, there's a controller and auditor general report um, in the hands of Michael Noonan and his department at present. Noel is a member of the Public Accounts Committee as well, which we'll deal with it at the start of uh, the end of September. Uh, September 22nd. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's going to be that's going to be really really big as. Um, from from my knowledge, uh, the minister hasn't read it, but his department officials have, and they are intending to act quite quickly when the uh, when the cabinet resumes, which I think is the start of September. Mr. Noonan will bring that to cabinet. And intend, I understand they intend to act very quickly what on it. Well, if I knew that, that'll be that'll <laughs> that'll be I'm our front page story sorry. for tomorrow. <laughs> but um, I mean, like that is the story that has just continued to grow legs over the past uh, year and um, with thanks to independent TD Mick Wallace it looks like it could potentially be reaching a conclusion or or the start of something possibly bigger, something bigger. and newer you know in, in September so um, you know Noel on the PAC will have his will have his hands full yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think you've outlined kind of uh, the first quarter, anyway. Certainly of uh, of political that, events. Yeah. Uh, so it'll be uh, it'll be action packed, certainly between the budget, uh, the citizens' convention in particular. I uh, saw that story today. Obviously, um, you know that's going to arouse public interest. I think in a huge way, and yeah. will be kind of the in- interest is one word for it. It's going to arouse a lot of controversy and conflict as well, isn't it? Yeah, no question. You can already see the kind of the opening forays of conflict when people are talking about you know what kind of people will be selected and how ninety nine people can't be represented 
representative of uh, you know society as a whole. But I mean, we've been through this process before. You know, we selected a hundred people before for the constitutional convention last time. So these parameters aren't particularly new, and yet they're but very evoking. F- very few of the issues that the constitutional convention. Um, dealt with were as divisive and as uh, emotionally laden on either side as abortion. I certainly take that point, but nevertheless, you do have to draw a line somewhere and you do have to pick, you know, a number of people. And I think 100 is probably, if you want to drill deep down into an issue and have everyone have their say, as opposed to, you know, some kind of a, you know, town hall full of a thousand people, uh, you know, which would become completely unwieldy. I think 100 people is, generally speaking, kind of international best practice for these kind of citizens' assemblies. As opposed to a number picked out of the air. <laughs> well, well but, but seriously, though, do you anticipate any controversy over the, the the way in which these people, the basis upon which these people are chosen and whether they're truly representative of the incredibly complex and, and divisive We had it here last couple questions. of weeks ago, Hugh, with Cora, mm. uh, with Cora Sherlock, who was already raising question marks over how uh, these people were going to be chosen. Um, I mean, the Constitutional Convention looked at gay marriage um, or holding a, a referendum on um, allowing same-sex couples to marry. And that was seen at the time to be incredibly politically divisive. And in the end, we all know how history has unfolded. Um, this one... But the other, sorry, my point was the other issues that the Constitution Convention examined were very tame. The Citizens' Assembly, its big issue, obviously, is examining the Eighth Amendment. But everything else aside from that is is fairly bland and boring fixed term parliaments and uh, the manner in which referenda are held. You know, it's fairly dull. So this one, obviously is the one that everybody will be examining in close uh, close detail. But you're right, there will be question marks as to how these people are chosen and whether or not they are representative of society. But you have to draw a a line under this debate. We've been having the same conversation for decades. And, you know, it might not necessarily be resolved by 100 people. No, no. Well, well, it won't be resolved by by the 100 people who will be chosen. I spoke to somebody at at some length about this uh, yesterday and the way people will be chosen is to be representative demographically and geographically. They will not be asked their views on the abortion Mm. issue because the whole point of the thing is that a conversation takes place and the intention from government is that the, the middle ground on abortion has a conversation at uh, at at, uh, uh, at the citizens assembly, but ultimately this issue will be resolved by, in the first instance, the doll, and then by people in a referendum if that is uh, if that is to pass. There's a fairly broad expectation that that is what happens, but we'll have to await first the recommendations of the citizens assembly, which will then go to a special all party Oroctus committee, then to the doll, and then if there is to be a referendum, that's what will happen. Um, either way, I suspect the back end of next year, of 2017, is the earliest you'll be looking at a referendum. At the very uh, earliest. Yeah. Yeah. There's plenty to be getting through before then, as we said. Listen, we shall leave it there. Uh, back to school properly next week, from what Sarah is saying, with more news around the place. Thanks very much indeed to Noel Rock for coming in today. Thanks also to Sarah and Pat. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And if you are a subscriber, we'd be very grateful if you'd rate or review it, because it does really help to get it out to a broader audience. Remember, we always welcome feedback as well. You can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com, or you can find me on Twitter at hlinehan. But until the next time, goodbye, and thanks very much indeed for listening. <laughs>